Welcome to All About Data on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jory Heckman. Thanks for joining me this week on All About Data, a conversation with chief data officers and the people who are making data work better in government. On today's episode, we're going to hear from a panel of chief data officers on using artificial intelligence and automation at their agencies. This conversation is an excerpt from a recent ATARC panel that I moderated. We have Scott Beliveau, the acting chief data officer for the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. We have Oliver Wise, the CDO at the Commerce Department. We have Brian Lorenz, the chief data officer for the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee. Tom Sasala, the chief data officer for the Department of the Navy. And we have Nick Saki, the principal technologist for Pure Storage. Everyone, thanks for joining me. We have so much to get into here. By all means, give yourself an opportunity to introduce yourself and your agency a little more fully, but I'll just couch the introduction in a pretty broad question here. What's the AI or the automation use case at your agency that excites you the most? Scott, we'll start with you first. Scott Beliveau, um, actually I'm from the uh, USPTO. USPTO is a, as an agency um, sometimes referred to as America's Innovation Agency. We look at things all, basically everything around you under the sun probably has either a patent or a trademark, you know, all the good things that help make our lives nice and better. In terms of, you know, use cases with respect to things going on in the agency or just in general, I think use cases are exciting. I think I usually turn to like a, a quote from, I think it was Jim McKelvey. He said, really, the focus of the entrepreneur is always on the horizon beyond the wall. And that's really, you know, to that end for use cases, I'm really most excited about those that are looking at spurning jobs, creating economic opportunity, really empowering innovators, entrepreneurs to grow and to help really American workers and business complete. To that end, um, you know, and consistent with a USPTO's mission of promoting the useful arts and sciences, we do a lot of work, you know, a lot of use cases along those lines. Higher up in the Commerce Department, we'll hear from Oliver. What are the use cases that excite you the most? So I'm Oliver Wise. I'm the Chief Data Officer at the Department of Commerce. You know, when I, I came to Commerce just about 90 days ago, I'm doing my position and was excited to see that there was already an inventory of AI use cases underway. And I thought those would just maybe there'd be a half dozen, a dozen. <laughs> But really, when you look at like what is happening at Commerce department-wide and all of its 13 bureaus, there is a ton of innovation happening, and there's really a robust set of use cases. It's really more in the order of like 100 or so use cases. So I think we've reached a scale where you can really develop some typologies about those use cases. Um, I'll talk about three of them real quick that excite me, and I'll, I'll leave it to Scott to talk about um, some other types of use cases. But um, I think the ones that most excite me are everything around image detection. The largest bureau within commerce is NOAA, which is not just about oceans and not just about atmospheres. It's really about, it collects environmental data from everything from the bottom of the sea floor to the surface of the sun. And it is uh, also the biggest source of data within commerce in terms of volume and also in terms of cost is the satellite system that NOAA operates. However, that satellite system will be eclipsed 
within the next three to five years by drones collecting imagery data. Those are drones that are attached to autonomous sailboats, really, which will be used to map the seafloor and get a much better understanding of our oceans. So commerce, and especially NOAA, just has an enormous, a mind-blowing amount of imagery data already. And that hockey stick growth in imagery data is only expected to accelerate. So AI is really not just a nice to have, but a need to have in order to make sense of that enormous amount of imagery data. So I'm especially excited about those use cases. You already see some, some very practical use cases coming up there. There's one to allow recreational beachgoers, and I'm sure there's a lot of people headed to the beach this weekend, to alert them of where there's riptides, which are very hard to detect to the untrained human eye, especially if you're at the eye level of the beach. And if you don't have lifeguards, it's very helpful to have some early warning of when and where those riptides are. So there's some research underway to train a deep learning model to detect where there are riptides, and then to alert beachgoers that there is one in the area. So riptides claim lives fairly regularly, and I think this, that's a really good use case that will save lives and um, protect the American public as they enjoy America's shores. For all this talk about the sea, let's naturally turn it on over to the Navy. Tom, let's hear a little bit more about the use cases over at the Navy that are front of mind for you. We have a number of different things happening with AI these days. And so some of the most compelling actually are related to what we're doing on the surface and subsurface activities, which is really around autonomous vehicles and our ability to create uh, uh, platforms that operate on their own in the open ocean. And so there's a lot of different things we're doing, both in terms of just sensor data that does support some of the work, maybe from NOAA that's gathering weather, it's gathering wave information, it's gathering current information, and allow these platforms to kind of, and I'm going to put this and air quotes, right, float around the ocean because they're not really floating around. They are truly actively navigating around the ocean uh, using telemetry, not only from their own internal sensors, but from GPS and satellites and a variety of other things. And then using a similar sort of basic technology there to engage in other sort of sensing techniques that, you know, we need to do for the Department of Navy in terms of, you know, checking up on shipping containers, on commercial pathways, that kind of stuff, as well as keeping an eye on maybe some of our adversaries, for example. And so that autonomous work is really uh, progressing at a dramatic scale. Uh, it's something that we weren't doing a whole lot of earnest investment in, in not so long in the distant past, uh, and it's really accelerating today. And so using those lessons learned from the research development, productionizing that or operationalizing that AI is just a ridiculously compelling use case for us right now. Now, in terms of the broader sort of I would say the data ecosphere that I play most in, there's a lot of other sort of AI stuff that we're doing from a departmental level in terms of image recognition, which, you know, Oliver mentioned a little bit. In this case, this is more in terms of maybe trying to identify friend or foe, a sort of, sort of target identification. 
computer-assisted uh, artificial intelligence techniques for the humans to help them in targeting to make better targeting decisions. And then on the kind of what I would say on the operation, or I should say on the mission side, the, the, op- the business side, which is really the use of predictive algorithms and helping us with, you know, better supply chain management, better platform availability, better execution of our budgetary authorities. We get a lot of money, obviously, from the Department of Defense and from, from Congress. And so making sure that we spend that money appropriately, making sure that it is obligated and committed and obligated and left over, rather than reverting those funds to treasury, we're now looking, using it, advanced predictive techniques to say, hey, when is this money going to expire? And then looking into the root cause of why, maybe why the money wasn't spent, and then trying to make some investment decisions if allowed to you know, reappropriate that money to something else. So lots of various different things that we're working on right now. And so uh, I would say there's just really... Uh, big, large areas that we're trying to figure out the best uses for artificial intelligence. And a lot of them are coming to fruition today. Um, And so I'm excited by that. Nick, I'll turn around over to you for that industry perspective on things. Where do you see the federal enterprise going when it comes to automation and AI? Everywhere. Across every endeavor of human activity and human cognition, every agency is employing or exploring employing artificial intelligence to improve their operations. This is really driven by the enormous explosion in data. There's just far more things that we can know than there are people to actually work through it to help make smart, relevant, timely, accurate, and predictive decisions. So AI augmentation of human capacity has proven utterly essential and foundational to modern governance in the 21st century across literally every area of endeavor. If there's a cabinet department covering some aspect of American life, then they're exploring artificial intelligence, as, you, as you've already heard. Brian, I'll turn it on over to you. What's the prax position on automation and artificial intelligence and everything that it entails? So the PRAC is, is a new entity, right? It was uh, created under the CARES Act to deal with the um, fraud associated with pandemic spending. So we oversee about $5 trillion that was pushed out the door. I think most people are familiar with the SBA PPP idle programs, the Department of Labor Unemployment Insurance programs and within all the state workforce agency, but it all adds up to about $5 trillion worth of spending. And uh, the fraud associated with those programs, to say the least, has been brazen, pervasive, shameful. It's, it's pretty dramatic how much fraud there actually is with those programs. And so how do you oversee $5 trillion? You have to get into the data, right? And so we've ingested a very large number of data sets that are government data sets, but also a number of commercial data sets, open source and whatnot. And then we've started to build models. And so the use cases are essentially fall into three categories, right? There's the fraudster is using someone else's identity or a synthetic identity. That's one of the use cases. And then there's all kinds of analytics that we're building around that use case, right? Then you have the fraudster is misrepresenting their eligibility. So they are who they say they are, but they're pretending that they're eligible for something that they're not. And that's actually been pretty dramatic. And there are so many different tells out there if you bother to use public data to sort of uncover uh, that misrepresentation. And then lastly, and this may be the, the hardest to detect, is um, the person is who they say they are. They are eligible, but they did not use the funding or the programs, the loans, the, the benefits, the way they were intended to be used. 
And so for each of those kinds of use cases, there are probably hundreds of sub-use cases, thousands of flags, and putting it all together through uh, machine learning, and then ultimately be able to apply some kind of artificial intelligence. So I think to some extent, the distinction is that we're doing a lot of pay and chase of this money. Unfortunately, the money went out the door and now we're trying to figure out how to hold people accountable, law enforcement, or, or, or maybe get them to pay it back or whatnot, but it's pay and chase. One of the reasons we do that is upfront, we don't have the artificial intelligence to really make a very, very quick upfront assessment that yea, verily, the person is who they say they are, they are eligible for it, and we can make that determination really fast. And maybe the future is to use artificial intelligence to get to the point where we can stop these payments before they go out the door. And I think that's a focus. That was Brian Lorenz, the Chief Data Officer at the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee. We're going to take a short break, but we'll continue our conversation when we return. I'm Jory Heckman, and you're listening to All About Data on Federal News Network. Welcome back to All About Data. We're speaking with Brian Lorenz, the Chief Data Officer for the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, just one of the panelists at a recent ATARC conference. One of the big underlying themes that I'm getting from this is that automation is, for many agencies, a force multiplier for the human workforce. There's just not enough eyes to look over all the data that's out there, for example. How is that a valuable tool in the toolbox for your agencies? I always like think of artificial intelligence in its most simplest form as, you know, commercial things that I use, right? Like Netflix, where it tells me, you know, oh, you like action thrillers, therefore you're going to like these next set of action thrillers, right? The application in the world that I work in, right, and fraud detection is if I have, uh, you know, a hundred some flags operating out there and there is a certain number of combination of flags that rarely result in a false negative or false positive. And so I I zero in on an entity. Why don't I look for all the entities that hit the exact same flags and then carry it out to all of them? So, you know, if you like this criminal, you're really going to probably like this criminal. And so that's probably the most simplest form of AI that I see. It's a force multiplier, obviously, because the big thing that we worry about other than the false negative, of course, is, is too many too many leads that result in false positives. Tom, do you want to take that question on too? From my perspective and what we're trying to do across the DoD as well as the Department of the Navy, there's various levels of automation, some of which are really computer augmented artificial intelligence support to decision making, right? And then there's what I would call the relatively, and I, I don't want to make this sound pejorative, but the mundane automation of the things that we can allow a computer to do that a human no longer needs to do that doesn't necessarily require 
training or an extensive amount of training and good training sets, right? That's something that we're trying to get after as well, because what we're seeing is that does free up the human beings then to focus more on that sort of what we call battle management aids or or computer-aided decision-making, right? That allows us to spend more time, more cognitive time, right? Approaching problem sets in terms of allowing computers to assist us, as well as what we're seeing is a lot of push from the forces from the operational side is the trustworthiness of the training data and the recommendations made by our computers, whether they're fully augmented in terms of artificial intelligence, marginally augmented in terms of, you know, some sort of machine learning techniques or whatever. And I'll just give you an example. Uh, we have to go in every every so often and turn off accounts of people that haven't been using their accounts, right? That's a process that used to be a human being that would you know, run a report every day and say these 15 people haven't logged it in 30 days ago and then disable their accounts or lock their accounts or whatever. There is no reason that a human being needs to do that. <laughs> None whatsoever, right? And you can take that and extend that to a lot of other sort of use cases, right? We were just talking the other day about the use of artificial intelligence and helping us select candidates through something like USA Jobs, right? Do we really need a human resources specialist to go in and say, hey, let me look at a resume. Let me look at their responses. Do they match? That's something that a computer could potentially do. Now, that's also something we've been talking about. We want that to be slightly more intelligent because we are seeing a little bit of bias insofar as the people that are responding to the questions just rate themselves fives across the board and they pay you know keyword bingo with your resume to make sure it matches what the questions were and then the computer you know spits out hey this is a good candidate whether they're a good candidate or not so that's something that we've been discussing and then the kind of the ethics around there and potential biases that we might introduce inadvertently in that selection process and so there's a lot of things that we've been kind of talking uh, again on the non-operational side but also that kind of force generating side on from a department navy perspective that really helps us drive our mission. Scott, I was noticing some head nods from you. Anything you'd like to add? Yep. Going kind of the the early introduction, you know, uh, world of intellectual property, world of, you know, all the cool, neat inventions and and things around us, there's always more. And, you know, I don't think anyone really would argue that, you know, technology generally becomes more complicated over time and, and off, you know, and I think as Nick was talking, it's being used everywhere and it's almost unbalanced for different missions. Well, that often equates to increasing filing or effort being put, you know, or filings within the USPTO. On average, we get about 5% more work every year. And, you know, if you think about it, it's like, well, do we hire and increase our workforce exponentially by 5% plus every year? And the answer is no, you know, we can't, we can't really do that in a sustainable manner. So um, sort of as what Nick was saying, you know, the nature of the job as a result of that requires that patent examiners look for it's like the needle in the haystack. Everything that's been done before, they need to know whether this thing is new against it. So it's almost like they, you know, and it because it's everywhere and everything that they have to look, they have to look at a thousand, a thousand haystacks for you know, for those particular needles. That's where we look at the construct of human resource or human capital augmentation with AI to help filter through and go through those particular signals in order to you know make our workforce more efficient. In terms of moving the needle on customer experience, AI and automation as a useful way to get there. Oliver, Scott, you know, I think from a commerce department perspective on things, you guys have a lot of customers. Let's let's hear that side of things. Yeah, I mean, the most common use case for AI, uh, according to the inventory that was underway when I came in, is chatbots. 
So just being able to answer the 80% of citizen questions quickly and efficiently so that you can really get the humans to answer the 20%. So I think that's a very common use case and really a fairly mature use case at this point. So that's one element of customer experience, you know, that actual like customer and government interface. But I think also just part of customer experience thinking more generally is just better, more efficient, more timely services that meet people where they are. And I think AI is critical to that effort and really, I think, will be increasingly expected of residents. So I think Scott's example of the use of natural language processing to speed up and make more efficient the the patent processing process is a great example of that. And I think any interaction of the citizen to government that's like that, like applying for some thing, like a license or permission to do something that otherwise would require a human being to go through a whole lot of records. If AI can assist in that process and help automate it, not necessarily replace, but can assist in that process, I think you're going to have a better, faster customer experience with their government. Scott, from the USPTO side of things, is there anything you'd like to add? Sure. Yeah. And I, I think it was kind of was touching on what Oliver was saying. Um, you, know, our, you know, our mission is to basically grant and timely execute, you know, high quality patents and trademarks. And, you know, and it comes down from a customer service perspective, the, the faster that we're able to do that in a manner that makes those predictable, reliable decisions the better we're all served, you know, as, as American people, you know, so see, to that end, you know, we have sort of a, you know, maybe it's a slightly different um, look at how we're using AI and in, in sort of two broader categories in this um, realm or uh, as it is. And that's, we're looking, we use AI really to bring promising techniques into the building with novel applications, for example, we talked about yeah a little bit about patent search classification. We've we've built um, tools for the public to help them file um, applications to kind of lower the barriers for uh, small independent inventors. Um, and we've done policy landscaping and kind of pushing research. But the the other part of this sort of dialogue or interface or how we're getting more into sort of the customer side is we're also contributing information or data that is advancing that research. So it's kind of a, a buy, you know, a, you know, both hands kind of working on two sides of the fence discussion, wherein we're, you know, doing these data challenges. We just wrapped up one, um, I think a couple of weeks ago with um, working with Google, Google Kaggle it was over 2000 participants, 88 countries. We're providing data sources that are, you know, training huge models to create that kind of that next thing. That was Scott Beliveau, the Acting Chief Data Officer for the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, just one of several panelists at a recent ATARC conference on AI and automation. Special thanks to ATARC for letting me moderate this panel. You can find more about this panel on federalnewsnetwork.com. I'm Jory Heckman, and thanks for listening to this episode of All About Data. Thanks for listening to All About Data on Federal News Radio part of Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and past episodes anytime in your favorite podcast app. Search for All About Data on Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows.